1: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. I'm
2: Kamal Ahmed, the economics editor of the BBC. Uh, welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate, or tonight, I think for one night only, we should call it Intelligence Cubed, given the brain power of our <laughs> author, Professor Harari, our very special guest, No lesser man than President Obama uh, recommended Sapiens as a book that everyone should read. And I'm sure a lot of people here have read it. But Joval is actually here to talk about his next book. Having finished with the history of the human race, 70,000 years plus a few more in a mere 350 uh, pages, uh, he's now on to the future of the human race, the future of us lot, uh, Homo Sapiens, and whether we are going to survive, frankly, um, not only another thousand years, but another 200 years, uh, given the rise of huge new forces uh, that, in his book, and those of you who've had a chance to read it already, I'm sure are aware of that and aware of this, and those who will get the chance to read it will become aware of it. These huge new forces of technology, uh, of Data uh, of the ability that medicine is not simply preventative, but becomes permissive. So Yervil, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It's a, clearly it's an apposite time. Um, uh, geologists have, uh, in the last few days, said that we should uh, move on from the sort of the Holocene. Uh, the, geographic, the geological um, era that has given us uh, thousands of years of understanding of, of our history, a- and move into the Anthropocene, the notion that human beings now are the most influential um, uh, 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 agents on Earth. Uh, I just wondered, just to kick us off, uh, whether you could just give us a sense uh, of your thesis of hmm. homidaeus uh, and what it is you are trying to get across Uh, in this quite remarkable
3: book? Well, um, to try to make it very brief, I begin by stressing the amazing achievements of humankind in the last century and the unprecedented position that we find ourselves in today. For thousands of years, the three biggest problems of humankind have been famine, plague and war and humans have prayed to every conceivable god, and angel, and saint to help them, and it didn't work. And they tried all kinds of political systems and economic models, and this didn't work either. And then, over the last century or so, um, thanks largely to human ingenuity, and to scientific development, we have managed to rein in, to gain control of famine, plague, and war. There are still, of course, huge problems in the world. There is still violence. There is still disease. But these have become from uncontrollable forces of nature into something that we know better and better how to prevent and overcome. Today in the world, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. For the first time in history, I think the last... Uh, data from the World Health Organization says that about three million people die each year from obesity and related diseases compared to one million people that die from starvation and malnutrition. At the same time, for the first time in history, more people die from old age than from infectious diseases. And also for the first time in history, more people commit suicide each year that the total number of deaths from war, crime, and terrorism put together, which is very good news. Um,
2: (laughs) Not the the suicide bit, presumably. No, but the fact that, that, yes, it's
3: it's, it's going (laughs) down. It's not that suicides have went up, it's that deaths from violence have gone down. Um, Today, let's say, for the people here in this room, I think it's safe to say that McDonald's and Coca-Cola pose a far greater threat to your life than Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. (laughs) The chance that you... (laughs) The chance that you will die from eating too much at McDonald's is about a thousand times higher, and this is not an exaggeration, this is statistics, it's about a thousand times higher than the chance you'll be killed by some Islamic State terrorism attack. So we are gaining the ability to bring under our control these uh, huge problems. Again, there are still problems, of course, but most of them, when it comes to famine, plague, and war, are the result of human politics and human incompetence, not of human ignorance. If you, again, take famine, there are no longer any natural famines in the world, only political famines. If somebody, if a human being today on earth dies because they don't have enough to eat in Syria or in North Korea or in Somalia, it's not because of natural causes. It's because some political leader or government or ideology wants them to starve to death. So this is a new phase in the history of the world. We have managed without any divine help to bring these three problems under our control. And then the next question that the book Homo Deus asks is, what next? So if we have solved or we are in the process of solving these problems, what will we do with ourselves in the next century or two? And the book suggests that the next big projects of humankind will be to overcome old age and death, to find the keys, the secret to happiness, and to basically upgrade humans into gods. This is why the title, Homo Deus, God-Man. And I don't mean it as a kind of literary metaphor. I mean it in, in, in the literal sense that for thousands of years, humans have imagined gods in a particular way. They ascribed particular abilities and qualities to gods. And we are here in a church And the walls are full of these descriptions of what God can do. And we are now seriously in the business of acquiring these traditional divine abilities and qualities to ourselves. Uh, Whether it's trying to overcome death and gain immortality. Or whether it's gaining the ability to create and design life according to our wishes. In the Bible, in the book of Genesis, basically the first thing God does is to create animals and plants and humans according to His wishes. We are now trying to gain this divine ability to ourselves. It's very likely that in the 21st century, the main product, the most important products of the human economy will no longer be just vehicles and textiles and food and weapons, The main products will be bodies and brains and minds. And in a way, we are even reaching beyond what ancient religions ascribed to to the gods. Because the gods, like Jehovah in the Bible, they could create only organic beings. If you look, if you're a creationist and you look at the world, so all these animals, all these plants, God created them and they are all organic. Now, humans are trying to do better than that. We will not just gain the ability to create these organic beings that's been around for four billion years. We are in the process of learning how to create the the first inorganic entities, inorganic beings uh, like artificial intelligence uh, that ever existed. Um, The next phase will involve trying to gain mastery over the world inside of deciphering Um, The human biochemistry, our bodies, our brains, learning how to re-engineer them, learning how to manufacture them. There is no way that the human brain has the capacity by itself to decipher the secrets, to process the data that is necessary to understand what's happening inside. You need help from artificial intelligence. You need help from big data systems. And this is what is happening already today, that we see this merger of the biological sciences with computer science. The result, however, may not be the upgrading of humans into gods. The result may be um, the end of humanity because humanity will create something far more powerful than than itself. Uh, Once you have an artificial intelligence or a big data system that understands you better than you understand yourself, then you're useless, you're irrelevant. Anything you can do, this system can do better. And it's a distinct possibility, it's not a prophecy, but it's a distinct possibility that in the 21st century, most humans will therefore find themselves in a new category, in a new class, of of humanity, just as in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution created a new massive class of the urban working class, the proletariat. And much of the political and social history of the 19th and 20th century revolved around this new working class, so the 21st century will create a new massive class of useless people, the useless class. And maybe much of the social and political history of the 21st century revolve, will revolve around the problems and the hopes and the fears of this new, massive, useless class. Um, yeah, but when, you, when you set out on sapiens, your, mm-hmm. your,
2: your historic look at um, uh, uh, how uh, homo sapiens have developed um, uh, through their history... Uh, was it always seen to you as a sort of two-book project, so to speak? And how much hmm. w- is Homo built on the trends uh, that you defined in um, uh, Sapiens? Because in Sapiens, you, you, you portray um, a world where Homo sapiens put themselves in a position of dominance. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least part of your argument for Homo Deus appears to be that this new supercategory of human being, homo deus, will put itself in a dominant position given how homo sapiens have behaved in the past. And you make some links, for example, in the way that homo sapiens um, deal with animal husbandry hmm. or don't deal with animal husbandry to be, to be frank. What are the lessons from sapiens that you drew out and built into the homo deus uh, hmm.
3: work? Sapiens, uh, the book, um, the main thesis there is that what enabled human beings to conquer the planet and to turn themselves from insignificant apes into the masters of the planet is their ability to cooperate in large numbers, which in turn is founded on their ability to create fictions and spread them around and believe in them. At the basis of all large-scale human cooperation, you always find some fictional story whether it's about God or about the nation or about human rights or about money, there is always fiction at the basis. And what I'm trying to do in Homo Deus is see what happens when these mythologies, these fictions, meet um, God-like technologies that, for the first time, make it possible to start realizing the myth, not after you die in some fantastic heaven, but here on Earth, with the help of technology. I'm, again, I'm a historian, I come, my background in the, in the humanities, I'm a terrible technophobe, I hardly know how to turn on the television. I have to rely on my husband to do that. Um, and so I'm not really interested in the, in the technical aspects of big data or artificial intelligence. I just take it for granted. Okay, it can artificial intelligence will soon be able to drive a car by itself. Don't you, need, don't you need to be? Don't you need to be? Some people in the AI market
2: or mm-hmm. in, in AI research would maybe argue that the problem with interlopers coming in mm-hmm. who don't know about the technology and not quite sure how to turn the TV on <laughs> is that how can they make sensible predictions about what AI may or may not do for human beings and to human beings, I think more mm-hmm. importantly... Uh, that that's a problem hmm. for, for a historian to come in and make such big, bold predictions on an hmm. area that they're not actually
3: specifically um, expert in. Well, I rely on the experts, and what is interesting, what is vital for me is to try and understand from the experts what is or isn't possible to do with these kinds of technologies. How is not within my field of expertise. And if you try to cover everything, it's impossible. You have to give up something. I think most of the people who are very interested in the future of technology, they are experts in technology, so they understand uh, these technical aspects of biotechnology or genetic engineering or artificial intelligence. But for me, the most interesting questions are not the technical ones. They are the political ones, the economic ones, the philosophical ones. And how can you make sense of what artificial intelligence would do to the economy or would do to religion if you don't have uh, the necessary background in philosophy, in history? Um, I think this is much more important um, to take an analogy from a past uh, technology, nuclear weapons, you don't really need to know how a nuclear bomb works. Maybe there is a demon inside, how, what do I care? I mean, what is important for me is that this device somehow, don't ask me how, this device I know can obliterate a city and kill hundreds of thousands of people in a minute. This is important to know. How, and, and this, building on that, you can start thinking about what this kind of weapon might mean for geopolitics or for religion. How does it work is not so important. Um, but how did I get to this? Uh, <laughs> uh, <line? laughs> I part <like> <laughs> it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, is, is AI as dangerous in the wrong hands as a nuclear bomb?: It's dangerous in a different way, A nuclear bomb threatens the physical existence of humankind. Um, Artificial intelligence, according to some experts, like Nick Bostrom, also poses a physical threat. Uh, In some scenarios, a super-intelligent AI might destroy on purpose humankind due to this or that uh, uh, reason. For instance, a favorite scenario is that the first, I don't know, corporation that builds the first super-intelligent AI in order to test the AI, gives the AI the task of calculating pi to see how it will do. And then the AI, the next thing it does, it destroys humankind, converts the entire planet into a huge, huge, huge computer that does nothing except calculating pi infinitely because this is the sacred task that the creator gave me to calculate pi. And these entities but They are calculate. using energy for all kinds of other purposes and not for calculating pi. So I must take away the energy to calculate pi and they will resist it. So I had better strike first and destroy them. So this is one of Nick Bostrom's favorite scenarios, which is possible. Um, again, as a historian and a philosopher, I'm more inclined in thinking about the, uh, the other ways in which artificial intelligence uh, um, threatens humankind, which is not to obliterate us physically, but to make us redundant, irrelevant, uh, useless, which from some perspective is an even worse fate. At least, you know, there is some grandeur in this big apocalypse. But just being pushed aside and history continues without us, with the AI going on to do wonderful things and we are just a footnote, Uh, This, at least for some perspective, it's even a worse fate. Um, And I think it's a more likely fate. Uh, I think in the next 50 years, it's unlikely that an AI will destroy the human race trying to calculate pi. But it is a very serious possibility that you will find hundreds of millions of people being pushed out of the job market and losing their economic and their political power because there is nothing that they can do better uh, than an AI. We are already seeing the, this process uh, happening in the military, whereas in the 20th century, the most advanced military forces in the world relied on recruiting millions and millions of soldiers, of ordinary people, to serve as soldiers in the army. And this made, this made all these people vital for the state. So even totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany invested in the health, in the education, in the welfare of millions of poor Germans because Hitler knew and the Nazi elite knew that if we want Germany to be a strong nation with a strong army and a strong economy, we need all these millions to serve as soldiers in the army and as workers in the factories. We need them. And now in the early 21st century, in the military it's over. You don't need the millions of people to to serve as soldiers in the army. The most advanced armies rely on relatively small numbers of very professional super warriors, and more and more on advanced technology such as uh, drones and cyberworms and, and so forth. And the same process may begin to happen in the civilian economy as well. Do you worry then that because if you speak to people, which I have done, so? Demisa Sarvis,
2: who is the chief executive of DeepMind, which is Google's AI mm-hmm. uh, business, is very clear that uh, what artificial intelligence does, which is incredibly positive, is that it supports human endeavor. It doesn't uh, make the decisions. It supports us in making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Whereas you are saying that the computers or AI in some manner gets ahead of where we are. How does that mechanism work where the computer starts deciding what is right and wrong and not leaving it to hmm. the human being to decide that?
3: Well, first of all, most people's jobs don't require making these big ethical decisions. Um, if you drive a taxi or if you're a GP, a general practitioner, a doctor diagnosing a disease, you don't make these kinds of big decisions. Um, and what you, what you do, driving a car and picking passengers, bringing them from point A to point B, or diagnosing the disease that this patient is suffering from and recommending a treatment, this is basically based on pattern recognition. Mm. And this is something that is very likely an AI would be able to do better than most humans within 10, 20, yeah, 30 years. No, agreed, and
2: even almost now with health data, for yeah. example, diagnostics, health data is very good, but it's mm. always put in the hands of a physician, a doctor, to make the decision on what actually happens to the patient. The computer doesn't say, well, you're, well, I'm just going to give you this drug now, thanks very much, I think that's what we should do. And at the moment, human beings are still in control. Yeah, at
3: the moment, definitely. I mean, we are still not there. Uh, we still don't see this massive use, useless, useless class. This is a um, uh, possibility uh, development which will take maybe 10, 20, 30 years. But once you have an AI like IBM, IBM's Watson, which is able to diagnose diseases better than a human doctor and to recommend the right treatment, then some doctors, will you always need them. Like in the army, you have the special forces. You still need them. So you will have the special forces equivalent in the medical profession. But the vast majority of GPs, like the vast majority of GIs, you don't need them. Um, And again, it doesn't involve these big ethical questions, and even the ethical questions. It's really interesting if you think about AI replacing human drivers. So suddenly the AI will have to make ethical judgments, and a lot of philosophical thought experiments that philosophers have been arguing about for thousands of years will suddenly become technical problems that engineers at Google or Tesla have to solve, like you have your autonomous car and it's driving on the road, and suddenly it sees that it's about to run over somebody. But it can swerve to the side, fall off a cliff, kill you, and save these five people on the road. These are the kind of things that philosophy students in the first year at university have been arguing about (laughs) for ages, and it never had any practical implications. Because even if you decide that the right thing to do is to swerve to the side and kill yourself and save the five people... It had no real impact on what people actually did in in, in life because research after research has shown that our theoretical views in real life situation matter very little. We act in a very different way than what we say we should act in in a philosophy uh, class. With AI driving the car, suddenly you have the opportunity to implement philosophy because the engineer at Google, that uh, designs the computer program, the algorithm, he or she, they need to answer this philosophical question. If the algorithm notices that there are five people, it's about to run over, and the only alternative is to swerve to the side, fall off a precipice, and kill the owner of the car, what to do? And you can have all kinds of solutions. You can have even several solutions, like Google or Tesla, they can go to the market with the altruistic car and the egoistic car. And, uh, you can buy either. Yeah, and the, the customer is always right. We'll just leave it to the customers to decide if they want a car that kills them or if they want a car that kills these five people. So, suddenly, all these philosophical questions... I think that in the next few years, just as today Google is starting to hire not only computer hacks, but also uh, biological experts, the next phase, there will be a lot of jobs for philosophers. And for people of that... Because you'll start having these philosophical problems becoming practical problems in designing algorithms.
2: Is, is the book, then, Homo is it really a call to arms? And, and what is your... Is there a solution to this problem in in getting people to understand how serious an issue this is and that we need to uh, debate it, to think about it, and to have it as part of the kind of democratic discourse? Hmm. How do we get ourselves there, given that people are mostly concerned about putting food on the table at the end of the week and, frankly, are their real incomes rising faster um, uh, than inflation? I mean, how 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 do we? This
0: show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
3: Start this debate. Well, first, we need to realize that this is really happening. It's not science fiction. And it's happening quickly. It already has a huge impact on our life today. It will have a huge impact uh, within the next few decades. Um, kids that start school today, it's the first day of, the, of school today. So like say, six-year-old kids who just start the first grade today, nobody has any idea what to teach them because nobody knows what will be relevant to their lives in 30 years. What kind of jobs they will have in 2040, nobody has any idea. So, These issues are not, you know, something for future generations to worry about. We should worry about them today. And so the first thing is to understand the time framework, that it's a question of decades and not centuries or millennia. Secondly, we should understand that it has a huge impact on issues like real incomes and putting food on the table, and that it involves day-to-day decisions that people make, not just some huge government or corporate uh, uh, decisions. It's how much authority you give to your smartphone to manage your life for you. It's how much information you give for
2: free. Because that's the issue, isn't it? The internet is democratic because we all use it or don't use it. No one's forcing us to do these things, but we um, decide to uh, do them.
3: They, I mean, there are more and more jobs that try to tell your boss that you don't want to have an email account or mobile phone and see what the reaction will be. Who becomes
2: the group of useless Homo sapiens and who becomes the group that become Homo Deus and mm-hmm. are we already seeing a whiff if not more than that, of this gradual divide between the billionaires in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you and
3: me, and someone on a dollar a week in Bangladesh? Um, yes, definitely. We, we are seeing inequality on the rise. And this the, is sort of astonishing inequality. Though. It's, it's a different type of inequality. I mean, what we're talking about is, for the first time in history, social and economic inequality... <laughs> may be translated into basic biological inequality. In the same way that, you know, for two million years, there were many different species of humans living on the planet side by side. It's only in the last 20,000 years or so that all the other human species went extinct because of us, and you had only Homo sapiens. All humans on the planet are a single species, Homo sapiens. These 20,000 years may turn out to be a very short interlude and Homo sapiens will again diverge, and will have a multiplicity of human or human-like species in the in the coming century.
2: W- w- uh, won't there be this trickle-down effect, as some economists would say, that the fact that Britain, um, the United States, obviously continental Europe led this charge um, on um, the industrial through the industrial revolution, and actually spread the ability to solve famine, mm-hmm. to to prevent disease to, in the end, prevent at least the worst exaggerations of war, and that actually, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that whatever the risks of um, artificial intelligence and the notion of the organic and the inorganic coming together,
3: in the end,
2: the person in Bangladesh will be advantaged mm. by the work in Silicon Valley.
3: Well, first of all, in the case of the Industrial Revolution, it took 100 or 150 years Uh, which involved horrendous atrocities and suffering in much of the world until the people in Bangladesh started seeing real benefits out of the Industrial Revolution. And, um, And there are two problems with thinking that this will simply repeat itself. First of all, the gap will be much bigger. The gap between a society that knows how to produce bodies and brains and a society that doesn't know how to produce bodies and brains is much, much bigger than the gap between those who know how to produce a steamship and those who don't. And it will become ex- impossible to close the gap because uh, the one doing the closing, the human being, is itself the thing that you're improving. So the longer you stay behind, the bigger the gap becomes, not smaller. Secondly... To a large extent, what enabled countries like China, like Korea, like Bangladesh to close the gap, at least to some extent, is cheap labor. This is the main thing that they had to offer, why to move a textile factory from Manchester to India to China, cheap labor. Um, In the 21st century, again, it's not a prophecy, I'm not sure about it, but it is a likely scenario that we have to take very seriously, is that cheap labor will count for nothing. It will be simply irrelevant. When you have nanotechnology and 3D printers and artificial intelligence and all that, maybe you will still need something from some humans, but cheap labor working in a factory will not be it. So what could the, uh, the next generation of, of, of left-behinds, what could they offer uh, the advanced economy of the second part of the 21st century? It's, it's unclear. Just finally, on, before I come to the audience, on um,
2: algorithms and the role of algorithms and uh, how we view uh, their power and this sort of change from um, a humanistic approach to the world to an algorithmic approach to the world. Can you just explain uh, the, maybe some of the advantages, as you say, in technology, there are often advantages, but also some of the risks about this view of the world that has really changed probably, as you... As, for your argument, our view of kind of liberal democracy.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, for the last century or two, the dominant ideology or religion of much of the world has been humanism, which says that human feelings are the highest authority in the world, in all fields. In politics, how do we know who should rule the country or whether the UK should leave the EU? We don't ask God, we don't read it in the Bible, we don't ask the Pope, we don't ask even the Council of Nobel laureates. We come to every, each and every person and ask, how do you feel about the UK living the EU? And this is how the important political decisions are made. And what science now tells us is that all this story about free will and human feelings and individuals making decisions, this is just fairy tales. This is just the modern mythology. Um, there is no free will, according to at least the biological sciences today. And human feelings are not this transcendental, magical thing emanating from some divine spark within ourselves. Human feelings are just biochemical algorithms that were shaped by millions and millions of years of evolution. Uh, It is true, the uh, biologists will agree, it is true that until today, Human feelings were probably the best um, decision-making system that we know about. Your feelings are there because millions of ancestors survived and reproduced relying on these feelings. So it made good sense. Humanism was correct in telling you, listen to yourself, listen to your heart, don't listen to the priests, don't listen to the Pope. But this was because nobody in the world understood what's happening within you, within your body. And nobody had the computing power necessary to decipher the inner workings of the human body and brain and these, these algorithms, the feelings. But this is now changing. We are gaining the biological understanding of what's happening within the body, within the brain, which produces all these feelings and desires and, and wishes. And we are uh, gaining also the computing power necessary to accumulate these massive amounts of data on me and on you and to analyze them and to understand, to understand me much better than I understand myself. We are very close to the point when Google and Facebook and Amazon will understand how I feel better then I understand how I feel. And just to give a practical example so it doesn't sound too far-fetched. So we are here talking about books. So up till now in history, humans read books. This was the deal. Now we are approaching or in the process of a new stage in which books read humans. Uh, When I read a book on Kindle, on Amazon's Kindle, so I read the book, of course, but at the same time, Kindle is reading me. Kindle knows how fast I read or how slow I read each page. It knows when I stopped reading, when I start reading again. It knows if I stopped on a particular page and never returned to the book. And this gives Amazon certain data about who I am and what my preferences are. But this is still very, very primitive. The next stage is that when you connect Kindle with face recognition uh, programs, which are already in existence, and then Kindle, the Kindle device can start knowing what is the emotional impact of every sentence you read on you by analyzing your facial expression. But this is still primitive because it's still just external signals. The next stage, which is just around the corner, is to connect the Kindle to biometric sensors inside your body. And when we reach that stage, Kindle, which means Amazon, will know exactly what is the emotional impact of every sentence you read. What made you angry? What made you bored? What made you happy? And where is I, And and you and most people, we forget most of what we read within a few days or a few weeks. Amazon will never forget anything. By the time you finish reading the book, you may know something new or not, I don't know, but Amazon will know exactly who you are, what is your personality type, and how to press your emotional buttons. And when you reach this stage, then institutions like democratic elections and free markets will be as obsolete as, as flint knives and rain dances. dancers.
1: <coughs> <laughs> so,
2: you, um, you can now prove Professor Harari wrong by showing how non-useless you are, otherwise you'll all be replaced by computers. So let's have some questions. There's a lady right down here. We'll do this side for a bit first. Uh, Anyone else there? And the gentleman just behind with the blue shirt and the white hair there. Yes, madam.
1: When you say say computers will be able to know us better than we know ourselves, I've just been reviewing your book, which is brilliant, but there is one fatal inconsistency, I think, and that is when you say that, what sort of knowing do you mean? Mm-hmm. It's only a metaphorical knowing. Yes. You've said yourself in that book, you've been so much cleverer than Dennett, in the way that you... He was a ghastly philosopher. Um, but, in, but in the way that you've said, we cannot dis, we can discard the soul, we can't discard the mind. Mm-hmm. The mind isn't like a collection of things, like a traffic jam is a collection of cars. There's something over and above. Like in Gödel's mm-hmm. theorem, there's something over and above the bits and the neural bits and pieces. And you've also said the whole point of testing laboratory rats for antidepressants is not to see what they do, but it's surmising how they mm. feel and then extrapolating from that to how human beings feel. Mm-hmm. So in which case, that is discordant with the fact that you're talking about computers knowing, mm. Amazon knowing. It's not, it's not knowing. You know yourself that it's yes. not knowing. Mm-hmm.
3: It's a different type of knowledge. Well, many people, especially in the business of creating artificial intelligence, they tend to confuse intelligence and consciousness, uh, which is understandable because in human beings, the two go together. Uh, But they are very different things. Intelligence basically is the ability to, to solve things, to solve problems, whereas consciousness is having subjective experiences, feeling something. Now, over the last 60, 70, 80 years, there have been an immense progress in computer intelligence. There has been exactly zero Development in computer consciousness. In the 1940s, the first computers had zero consciousness, and today they have zero consciousness. And we don't see any signs of any computer gaining any kind of consciousness anytime soon. So in this sense, yes, uh, knowing in the, in the true sense of a subjective experience, this is far beyond Kindle and Amazon and all the AI. The big problem is that... As long as consciousness and intelligence went together, which was the case in humans for millions of years, debating the relationship between them and the relative importance was an exercise for philosophers, but had very little practical implications. Now, when we see the decoupling of intelligence from consciousness, there is a big practical question of which is more important, more important to whom, to the economic system, to the political system, to the military, to the army. And um, the disconcerting fact is that for the system, for the economic system, for the military system, only intelligence matters. They cared about consciousness only because uh, they needed it as a kind of substratum for intelligence. But if they can have intelligence without consciousness, they don't really care about it. If you think about most professions, what you need from a taxi driver is to bring you from point A to point B as cheaply and efficiently as possible. Until today, taxi drivers had to have consciousness because the only entities that could do it were human beings. But once you have a self-driving car that can do it, so the system won't care that the self-driving car has no consciousness, that it doesn't feel anything because it doesn't need the taxi driver to feel anything. So, um, I think one of the big dangers that we are facing in the 21st century is that when intelligence decouples from consciousness, uh, the tendency of the system, of corporations, of governments, of armies, is to discard consciousness and just invest in intelligence. Thank you.
2: Gentleman there. Who else is up
3: in that? There's a lady there,
2: yes, next there, at the back with the glasses. Yep. Yes, sir. Firstly, at the time of the Industrial Revolution, obviously forecasts of huge unemployment in the future were, were,
3: were abundant, which hasn't materialised. The home of Silicon Valley has unemployment, or the US has unemployment of circa, let's call it, 4%. <clears throat> so that never happened. And what, what do you think makes it different hmm. this time round? Uh, the basic difference between the 19th century Industrial Revolution and what's happening now is that uh, we are now reaching the limits of what we know are human abilities in a way which was not true in the 19th century or in the 20th century. Homo sapiens, as far as science is concerned, has basically two kinds of abilities, uh, physical bodily abilities and cognitive abilities. Uh, In the Industrial Revolution, machines replaced humans more and more in jobs that required mainly physical abilities, and then humans moved to working in new jobs that required mainly cognitive abilities. Now what is happening is that computers and artificial intelligence are starting to compete with us in these cognitive abilities, and we don't know about any third kind of field of, 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 uh, of ability that we can, okay, let's leave the cognitive things to the uh, computers and we'll do something else. There is no something else. I mean, one suggestion is emotional abilities, emotional intelligence. But the problem is that at least from a biological perspective, emotions are not special. They are not unique. They are not different from other cognitive abilities. Uh, Emotions are not some I don't know, spiritual transcendent thing that God gave only homo sapiens in order to write poetry and and things like that? No. Emotions, as we said earlier, at least according to mainstream biology, are biochemical algorithms shaped by natural selection. And already today, computers are starting to outperform humans even when it comes to emotional intelligence. They don't have emotional consciousness. They don't have emotions of their own. But their ability, for example, to diagnose correctly your emotional state is becoming better than the ability of human beings, so even this is blocked. We don't know at present about a third kind of ability that uh, humans can have, which is superior to uh, computers. Now, of course, there will be many new jobs. We just don't know whether humans will be able to do the new jobs better than computers. Another problem, another difference compared with the Industrial Revolution era is that the pace of change is accelerating. So even if there are new jobs that humans are able to do better than computers, uh, we will have to reinvent ourselves again and again to change our profession every 10 or 20 years. And this is something that is going to be extremely difficult for most people. Let's say there are new jobs in designing virtual worlds. And let's say you are a 50-year-old insurance agent or taxi driver, and you're left without a job because an AI has taken it over. But there is an opening in designing virtual worlds. What kind of virtual world a 50-year-old insurance agent is going to design? Will he or she be able to reinvent themselves at 50 as a designer of virtual worlds? These are the kinds of problems that, again, it's not a certainty, it's not a prophecy, but it should give us pause, and it should make us think harder and not just be complacent and say, okay, we've seen it before in the Industrial Revolution. We can just relax, and something will come up. Some new jobs will open for all these jobless taxi drivers and doctors and whatever.
2: Yeah, um Robots and AI, they're clearly lowering the costs of production. Someone needs to capture that profit, right, that has is, is, is come because of lower costs of production. And up until the 1980s, companies that, that generated those profits would employ and invest, and, the, and you'd get this economic, self-perpetuating economic growth. It's, since the 1980s, it's shown up in lower prices. So inflation has been a lot lower. People are sitting, instead of uh, serving in a, in a cinema, for instance, they're now on the Internet, surfing and gaining enjoyment that way. So you're seeing it in a lower prices. So the question is, um, why can't that continue? And, and how do you see this dynamic between profits and owners of capital and labor and, um, and laborers playing out in the next few years?
3: Well, again, it's, it's only a possibility. I mean, there are different possibilities, but I think the most worrying possibility is that labor becoming less and less important, less and less necessary human labor, And then more and more of the profits being accumulated by a very small elite that controls the master algorithms, the artificial intelligence, and and, and so forth. So um, it's not the only scenario. As I said earlier, technology is not deterministic. Just as with the uh, steam engine and the internal combustion engine, you could create a communist dictatorship or a liberal democracy. So also with algorithms and artificial intelligence and biotechnologies, there are different scenarios. I focus on the more worrying scenarios in the hope that we'll do something in order to prevent them from being realized.
2: So, yeah.
0: I so I guess yeah. my question follows uh, from that in a sense. It's a Marxist question. You, you see the, the technology that you're describing is in the hands of the major corporations now. Uh, the progress is being made. Do you think that was historically inevitable when you look back? And do you not think that ideology is required in order for us to organize, Mm -hmm. to oppose, thinking Mm -hmm. of Uber as an example?
3: Yes, definitely. I mean, it's not inevitable and ideology is extremely important. One of the worrying things about the world today is that the dominant ideology, certainly in the West, is neoliberalism which basically tells governments, you don't need to know anything, you don't need to do anything. Uh, Just leave it to market forces and everything will be okay. And um, this worked to some extent, at least in in some areas, but in the 21st century this can be a a catastrophic uh, ideology because I wouldn't trust market forces to come up with the best solutions for problems like global warming or like the dangers inherent in the rise of artificial intelligence. And the thing is that governments really like to believe in the neoliberal dogma because it basically um, uh, exonerates them from any responsibility. And it tells them the fact that you're ignorant and that you're not entering these debates and you're not doing anything, this is something good. It's not something that means that you're ignorant or incapable or whatever. It means that you're very wise. It's very wise to be ignorant about what is happening and and to to do nothing because you're then leaving it to the really smart forces, which is not you, it's the market forces. And um, the next incarnation of this kind of thinking would be just leave it to the algorithms. We are incapable of processing the data, so just leave the big decisions to the algorithms. And there is a direct line, I think, leading from this kind of neoliberal thinking to this data thinking that says algorithms analyzing big data will come up with the solution. And actually, there is a very strong view that until today, the stock market has basically functioned as the most sophisticated data processing system in the world. And it was wise to give this external, unconscious data processing system the power, the authority, to make the most important decisions in the world. And if we allow this authority to the, uh, to the market, to the stock exchange, then why not do the same thing with the next the next uh, stage of evolution of these external data processing systems. Lady at the back, final question.
1: Um, okay, so slightly changing the tack a little bit. Um, if, even if you think that an AI could gain the emotional intelligence to maybe diagnose someone with depression by looking at the chemicals in their brain to see whether they are depressed or not, do you ever think that they could gain the emotional consciousness, as you said, kind of hmm. showing a difference to... Consistently be a therapist to someone with depression or someone with schizophrenia if they haven't had the emotional consciousness of living a life as someone, like a therapist, has had?
3: Um, I don't think that they will gain emotional consciousness or any kind of consciousness anytime, anytime soon. I haven't seen any evidence that we are coming near enough to understanding what consciousness is. Uh, so that we can give it to to computers. Um, But I do think that emotional intelligence can go a very, very long way, even when it's not accompanied by consciousness. In the case of humans, when we try to sympathize with the emotional state of another person, when we try to treat somebody with mental illness, We often try to rely on our own emotional state. Oh, when I feel this, uh, it would be helpful if I would be in that kind of situation. So maybe I can do this for that person. Now, an an AI therapist would not function in such a way. It would function, it would use um, the, the strong ability of AI to recognize patterns. It will analyze, it will understand the emotional state of this person by recognizing biological patterns in his or her body. And then when it comes to treatment, it will try to recognize patterns in millions of other patients throughout the world who suffered from a similar condition, what worked and what did not work. And based on this pattern recognition, it will try uh, to help this person. Whether it will succeed or not is, in the end, an empirical question. There is no point in in arguing in advance whether it will be successful or not. It's an empirical question. We'll have to wait and see, and we probably won't have to wait very long. Now, the huge advantage of an AI therapist is that it's everywhere, all the time, and very, very cheap. In the case of human therapists, in order to train a therapist, you need like 10 years. And after that, also many years of experience before he or she becomes a very good therapist. And then they charge a lot of money for like 45 minutes or 50 minute session. (laughs) And they are not available all the time everywhere. If I go to India and I have a crisis there, I mean, my therapist is back home, so what to do? But if my therapist is an AI application on my mobile phone, it's all the time with me. It can, I don't even have to notice myself that I'm having a nervous breakdown or something. It will alert me when it's just starting. <laughs> hey, look out. And again, in the end, it's an empirical question. If it will uh, help people, then people will choose to rely on it more and more. And it's the same with all the other of these wondrous algorithms gaining authority. Like you have now these ubiquitous algorithms on a mobile phone that tell you like, how to get to this place. You exit the tube on embankment, and how do you get to this Emanuel Center? So if previously you tried to rely on your memory and your gut feeling or whatever, so now you take out the application and you ask Google, Google, how do I get to the Emanuel Center? And then it's an empirical question. If it gets you to the wrong place, you won't rely on it anymore. The for for authority to shift away from humans to these algorithms, the algorithms will not have to be perfect. They will just have to be better on average than human beings. And this is not so difficult because human beings make such terrible mistakes in the most important decisions of their lives that it's not inconceivable that, at least in most cases, algorithms will be able to outperform us, and then authority will shift away in decisions like what to study, where to work, where to live, whom to marry. Authority to make these decisions will shift from humans to algorithms. Phew. Um so,
2: sadly, uh, this, this debate could go on for another sort of six months, quite happily, to be frank. Um, uh, you know, absolutely amazing. Of course, Google won't send us here if it knows we're listening to you. or send us somewhere else to make sure we can't hear all your uh, clever arguments. Just to set us off on our way before we draw to a close so we're not all too sad about your, um, your prognosis for the future, please prove to us that you are not simply the world's cleverest pessimist. In a couple of sentences.
3: Um, well, first of all, I think that to a large extent it depends on age. Uh, I think people under 20 Stop oh. will hear <laughs> this talk and they will say, wow, exciting, and not, oh, so pessimist. Because, um, again, until a certain age we like change and we are in the business of reinventing ourselves. And beyond a certain age we're basically in the business of keeping things as they are, and we don't like huge changes. Uh, Secondly, I think that in the past, humankind has proven its ability to rise up to the challenge, at least some of the challenges posed by new technologies. The most promising example, I think, uh, certainly in recent uh, generations, is the human reaction to nuclear power and to nuclear weapons, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was very widespread to think that um, the world would end, or humanity will end quite soon in some kind of nuclear holocaust. It's a kind of, you know, that the of law in theater, that a gun appearing on the first act must fire on the third act. And the gun appeared in 1945, the first act of the Cold War, and a lot of people, very clever people, were convinced that the play will not end unless the gun fires. And the gun did not fire. Uh, Instead of a nuclear holocaust, we actually experienced in the last few decades the most peaceful era in human history. Still conflicts there are in some places. I come from Israel, so I know. There are still conflicts in the world, but it's the most peaceful era in history, largely thanks to nuclear weapons, which forced humankind and the political class and the superpower to completely change the rules of the game, of of geopolitics, the way humans behaved for thousands of thousands of years. They stopped behaving like that in the last few decades because they had to confront this new menace of nuclear weapons. Now, of course, nothing is guaranteed about the future. Maybe there still will be a nuclear holocaust in the next few years or next few decades, but compared to the 1950s, we are now far more optimistic about uh, nuclear weapons and our ability to handle them. So I think this gives us a real concrete and very important precedent for the ability of humankind to rise up to the challenge of revolutionary new technologies and avoid the dangers and actually make something good out of it. On that
2: optimistic note, <laughs> I'm going to draw it to a close. Thank you so much, Yerbal, for an amazing 90 minutes.
1: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.